The Lord has, has so graciously brought us to a particular passage in John's Gospel today because He has intended, since it was written, for all who encounter it to reckon with a particular question, a very core foundational question. This question matters not only for your life today, but I don't think it's an overstatement to say that 10 billion years from now this will be in your estimation, the most important question. What further evidence do you need to rest your hope for eternal life exclusively upon the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, who is one with the Father? As we sang a moment ago, what more could he say than to you he has said? Jesus lays down in our passage today a host of unassailable witnesses to his deity, testimonies to his godness. So to fail to believe upon Jesus cannot be attributed to a lack of evidence that he is God. Today's is not an apologetic sermon to give you artillery to argue with against those who say they don't believe, but rather to get underneath unbelief and to ask the why question. J.C. Ryle put it so well, unbelief does not arise so much from want of evidence as from want of will to believe. You don't want to believe is the reason any don't believe. With that in mind, John chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 31, and I'm reading from the New American Standard translation, I joyfully invite you to hear the words of the Lord Jesus. John 5, 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from men. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, He has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His form. You do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. You search the Scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. 
If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What a passage. Join me at the throne of grace, please. And I encourage you to let me be our voice as we ask for God's help again. Oh, Father, we're asking that you would do for us now by the power of the Holy Spirit the first half of John 5.23, just before the portion we read, that you would enable us to, to honor the Lord Jesus unto your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take this passage which really outlines itself, it preaches itself, your Bible may even have subheadings, four of them, in the portion that we read just a moment ago. We'll take it in five parts, the, the first part, and then probably, as your Bible lays it out, or many, four subheadings that follow. First, verses 31 and 32, Jesus wants to reiterate what he has already laid down in the previous passage. That is his self-testimony, that he believes he is God, is corroborated by the Father. It's as if God the Father stands up in the courtroom of human appeal and he's not interested in our verdict. He's telling the truth whether we believe it or not. It's as if the Father stands up and says, yes, the one who claims to be my son is in fact my son. That's verses 31 and 32. Then the testimony of the Father is again repeated a little later in the passage, but look again at verse 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Jesus is referring to the Father there in verse 32, and then he'll transition to John the Baptist in the following verse, but based on the previous passage, we can see that the one, the another, who testifies of the Lord Jesus is, is the Father. But before we just look into that for a moment, would you just reckon with all your mental energy, even prayer-filled mental energy, with verse 31? If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Immediately before the passage where we began our reading, we find in the preceding verse, verse 30, one of the, one of the deepest fountains of the experience of Jesus' hypostatic union anywhere in the Bible. That is that he is truly God and truly man in one person without conflating natures. I say it's one of the deepest fountains. Can, can you grapple with this afresh? Verse 30, the Lord Jesus, I can do nothing on my own initiative, or if you just skipped back to verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. 
as we considered in the last passage, the person who says the sentences of verse 19 and verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative, the person who in verse 31 is saying, if I testify about myself alone, then my testimony is not true, is the same person who in the preceding chapters flung the universe into existence by his creative genius. The one who made all things and by whom everything is sustained. The light of the world, the logos of God, the one who from eternity is God, is the one saying, I can't do anything by myself. That should cause our ears to perk up. It should cause our hearts to ponder what is being said. The beauty of our Redeemer in these statements will not lose even one degree of luster for all of eternity. It is, in verse 31, especially 30 and 19, an accent on the voluntary subordination of the Son of God to His Father. That is, His willingness to become incarnate. And in His earthly life and ministry, to live moment by moment, and I mean nanosecond by nanosecond, waking and sleeping, fully dependent on the will of the Father. And if you can see in Jesus this quality, that He is, yes, the eternal Logos, chapter 1. He is, yes, the light of the world, chapter 1. He is the giver of life, chapter 1. The tabernacle who possesses all the glory of God, chapter 1. And who alone exposes God to humanity, chapter 1. He's the only person who can cause people to be born again, chapter 3. If you can see that the same one who, to whom those things would be rightly attributed is also humbly dependent, totally submissive to his Father, it would have an unavoidable effect in your soul. That is a magnetic attraction to Christ. You would want to be near Him as a fish on the end of a line is reeled in. Maybe at first confused, and then finally brought near, not in resistance and rebellion, but in glad-hearted embrace. Think about it like this. When you see the humility of the Lord Jesus, and who is He that He should humble Himself to anybody? When you see the humility of the Lord Jesus, Jesus starts saying things about you like this. I have not found greater faith with anyone in Israel. Do you remember in Matthew 8 when the centurion comes to Jesus who had a child in need and the centurion says to Jesus in Matthew 8 I am a man under authority but he doesn't just say it that way he says it this way I also am a man under authority but he's a centurion century 100 centurion leader of 100 men I'm a man under authority and I say to this one, go and he goes. And to that one, come and he comes. This one, do this and he does it. 
And he tells Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and it'll be done. Jesus says, I've not found greater faith with anybody in Israel. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that this man understands submission. He understands rank. He understands obedience. He understands what it means to be a subject to another. And he sees in the creator of the universe that kind of subjection to another. He looks at Jesus and says, you are under authority? You submit? How can it be? You're the God who can just speak the word and my son will be healed. You know what Jesus says? Go, your son is made well. The subordination of the Son to the Father in His incarnation and in His earthly moment-by-moment labors in verse 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. How shocking should it be to our souls for Jesus to say, if I'm the only one saying I'm God, don't believe me. There's at least one application we should draw. If you're the only one saying you're a Christian, nobody should believe you. If the Son of God says, don't believe I'm the Son of God, if I'm the only one saying it, don't believe it, shouldn't we also say something similar about ourselves in our relationship to the Father? Jesus did nothing on His own initiative. That's to put it negatively. He always did which pleased the Father. John 8.29, that's putting it positively. positively. He therefore achieved in His life of full submission the righteousness which God required for him to become an adequate sacrifice for unrighteous sinners who did not submit and didn't want to submit and tried to become our own God, put our fist in God's face and said, you're never going to tell me what to do. I'll tell you what to do. And on occasion when I feel like I need you, I might just reel you into my little universe to do me a magic trick. Jesus came to submit the way you were supposed to so that he could become the sacrifice that you should have been. The subordination of the Son to the Father, even in his own testimony to himself, is beautifully highlighted in verse 31. In the vein of his voluntary subordination to the Father, the Lord Jesus utters, not only if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. He's not saying that What he said is false. Just skip forward to chapter 14 and you will hear him say with his own lips, he is the truth. He doesn't just speak truth. He himself is the embodiment of truth. He's not saying that if he alone speaks, then everything he said was false. We can discern from verse 32 what he means. That the lofty claims... He had been making in the preceding passage about his deity, verses 18 through 30, where he undeniably asserts his equality with God. And there can be no doubt that those who heard the teaching of Jesus understood that Jesus believed that Jesus was equal with God. Let your eyes fall on verse 18 to see that fact. The lofty claims he had been making about his deity, undeniably asserting his equality with God, those lofty claims of Jesus depended not exclusively on Himself, but also on the witness of His Father. Otherwise, His self-attestation should be dismissed as false. If the Father doesn't verify it, don't believe Him. To put it as plainly as I know how, 
Jesus taught that if he was the only one who asserted his deity, then no one should believe anything he said. Let that sink in for just a moment. John 5 is forcing us, and any honest reader, I mean just half, halfway honest reader, to reckon with what has been referred to for centuries as a trilemma. Not a dilemma, two problems, a trilemma, three problems. It's forcing us to reckon with, as C.S. Lewis put it, this trilemma of you have to make a conclusion if you read John 5. You can't just read it and go on about your day as if it doesn't say what it says. Here's the problems. As Lewis put it, he is, the Lord Jesus is either a liar, saying he's God and he's not, he's a lunatic, believing he's God and he's not, or he is in fact Lord. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. There's simply no wiggle room for an honest engagement with Jesus' self-attestations than one of those conclusions. So I put that line in the sand for you, straight from John chapter 5, and I ask you today, pick a side. How do you respond to him? Jesus was unflinchingly convinced of the truthfulness of his lordship because he possessed the assurance of the Father's witness, verse 32, he didn't need the court of, a human, of human appeal. He wasn't going to waver if everybody rejected him because his confirmation and confidence came directly from the throne room of his heavenly Father. So we live in this cancel culture, don't we? You say one thing that somebody doesn't agree with, forget civil discourse. I mean, forget honest engagement and reason and conversation. If you don't like what somebody says, just delete them. That's not new. The Jews were seeking to cancel Jesus in John 5 for his claims to deity. But no matter how much they sought to silence him on earth, the testimony of heaven remained unmoved. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The father speaks in the opening chapter of Hebrews about his son. For to which of the angels has the father ever said, you are my son? So that's verses 31 and 32. The testimony of the Father corroborates the testimony of Jesus. And now Jesus proceeds to give four witnesses, one of which again will be the Father, to his deity. That he is God. Verses 33 to 35 is the testimony or witness of John the Baptist. Verse 33 says, you've sent to John and he has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may believe he, that's John the Baptist, was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing for a while to rejoice in his light. So the ministry of John the Baptist isn't just showing up here in John 5. It's already been accented by John the writer in the first three chapters. What the writer John is doing in verse 35 is saying that Jesus is referring to the Baptist, John the Baptist, as the lamp burning and shining, in whose light you were willing to rejoice for a little while. See, people like John. I mean, there was a little bit of fanfare around him. People were coming from Judea and surrounding areas out into the wilderness to see this man dressed in camel's hair and leather belt, eating locust and wild honey and preaching like a man with his hair on fire. It was a little bit of, to them, theatrics, you know, a little entertainment for the day. 
What do you guys want to do this weekend? Let's go out to the wilderness and see that crazy man and listen to what he has to say. John 1. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. He was a lamp, but he wasn't the source of the light. And Jesus is saying, he was a lamp burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice in his light for a little while. That didn't last long, did it? What did they do with John the Baptist? Because he wouldn't buckle and cower? He didn't change his message to keep gaining more you know, popularity or bigger crowds. What did they do with that man? Cut his head off? Because he told the king of the day that it was wrong to live with a woman to whom he was not married? Jesus' testimony in verse 33 concerning John the Baptist, Jesus said he has testified to the truth in verse 33. He's referring to the message that John the Baptist announced, especially to that accusatory entourage. Do you remember that when John was out there and all the crowds were going and he was baptizing and preaching? Do you remember in John and the Synoptic Gospels that the Jews sent an entourage to him to ask him some questions. John, the writer, tells us about this in chapter 1, verse 19. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. That's the crowd in John 5 Jesus is talking to. They asked John the Baptist in John 1, who are you? And John confessed and didn't deny, I'm not the Christ. They said, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you that we may go give an answer to those who sent us? That's the people Jesus is talking to in John 5. The people who sent those people to John are the people that Jesus is talking to in John 5. Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So when Jesus, in verse 33, says he testified to the truth, he's saying that the message that John the Baptist proclaimed openly in the wilderness and sent succinctly back with that delegation to his questioners is that John understood that his assignment from God was to play a particular role in redemptive history, the overlap of the ages, the old covenant coming to an end, the new covenant starting to be inaugurated at the coming of Christ. John lived in the overlap of the ages. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's the first of the New Testament prophets. He saw the Savior with his own eyes, though he didn't live long enough to see him die and rise again. So like an Old Testament believer, he looked forward to the cross and resurrection of Christ, and he proclaimed that Jesus is... Let me use his words. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the testimony that John the Baptist gave. Not only is Jesus the sacrificial Lamb who alone can take away our sin and make us right in front of God, John also says that that same Lamb has existed from all eternity. He has a higher rank than me because He existed before me. The eternality, the deity of the Son of God. Question, why then did God supply the testimony or, or witness of John the Baptist in addition to verse 32, the Father's own divine declaration to Jesus' identity? Why, did, why in addition to God the Father would God also give John the Baptist? 
The answer's in the verse. Not for Jesus' sake. John the Baptist did nothing to convince Jesus that Jesus is God. Why? So that sinners may be saved. Do you see verse 34? The testimony which I receive is not from man. I don't need John's testimony. But I say these things so that you may be saved. Do you see how God from ages past has been raising up prophets and preachers? People like Nehemiah who get on the wall and cry for God's blessing on his people. Broken-hearted prophets like Jeremiah who weep over their cities and the sins of their people. Men like Ezekiel who go out into the middle of a pagan land and cry for souls to turn back to God. Men like John the Baptist, why does God continue to raise up witnesses to the Messiah? Why didn't he just say it one time, put a period at the end of the sentence and say, if nobody else is going to get it, then so be it. Because he wants you to be saved more than you want to be saved. He's not hiding from you in many portions. And in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers in the prophets. John is one of those. But in these last days, He spoke in His Son. Why did He do it? So that you may be saved. Now can you envision the scene of John 5 before we go to the third part of it? I want you to see the setting as best you can in your mind's eye. Try to draw it. Try to sketch it. The Lord Jesus is looking men in the face who have grown up with religion dripping off the hem of their garments. They probably got their phylacteries and tassels in tow as they're talking to him. Can you see these men? Can you see their rabbinical hat and their long robes and sashes? Can you see the tassels on their garments? Can you see their well-manicured, pharisaical beards. The Lord Jesus is looking men in the face who have grown up with religion dripping from the hem of their garments since they were knee-high, and He is asserting to them that they are not saved. These men are hell-bound. I deduce from the remainder of the Gospels most of them burst hell wide open and were the most shocked of all upon that fateful demise to realize they missed the Savior. The third part is verse 36. There's a testimony weightier than John the Baptist. More gravitas, more heaviness, more substantial than John the Baptist. It's in verse 36. That is the works of Jesus. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. Greater. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. The comp- as compelling and clear and unmistakably essential as was the testimony of John the Baptist to the Lord Jesus that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, God has given an even greater testimony a more substantial, more weighty, it should leave a bigger dent in you as a witness to the world of the identity of the Lord Jesus as God. Verse 36, the testimony which I have is greater 
than the testimony of John. Question, what could be greater than a man willing to die, as John the Baptist was decapitated, for the truth that Jesus is the only Redeemer for the entire human race as the Old Testament has promised? What could be greater than a man not only willing to preach it, but a man willing to die for it? Answer, according to Jesus, the works, plural, of Jesus. I don't know why the NIV translates it singular, but it's plural, the works of Jesus. Meaning this is a blanket statement by Jesus. It encompasses everything that he was sent by the Father to do. All of his signs, all of his miracles, all of the evidence given in his life of perfect submission to the Father's will, especially in his paramount work of salvation accomplished for the elect in his death, resurrection, and exaltation to the Father's right hand. All of his works are in view in verse 36. But notice again you get a statement that accents Jesus' submission to the Father. Verse 36, for the works which the Father has given me to do. And at the end of the verse, these testify about me that the Father has sent me. Another accent on his subordination. That he is sent. That he's in the role of receiving instruction and obeying the Father's will and carrying out the decree of another. See this beauty in Christ. That all of His work, all signs, all miracles, all evidence of submission in His life, everything He did from birth to death, even in His resurrection, was an assignment that the Father gave Him. Like John 17, I have accomplished the work You've given Me to do. He lived a life of full submission. But notice that little word, sent. The end of verse 36, it appears at least three times in this passage, that the Father has sent me. These works testify. These works sing a song. They give a speech. They make an announcement. They carry a message. And the message is this. I'm sent from the Father. Forty-three times in John's Gospel, John the writer uses that word to describe Jesus 40 of the 43 come from the lips of Jesus. Jesus elongates his sentences. He says things in a more convoluted way, an expanded way, in order to get that word into his sentence. He doesn't say, believe me. Regularly, he says, believe in the one whom God has sent. That's a longer way to say me. He doesn't just say father. He says, father who sent me 40 times. Clearly, John's trying to make a point. And the point is nowhere more clear than John 17, 3. This is eternal life. Okay, now I'm listening, God. This is eternal life? You should really care about what's in the rest of that sentence. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now think about it. Eternal life is not knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ whom God has sent. Knowing that the Jesus who must be known for eternal life in order to know the Father truly is the one 
who humbled himself. This is antinomy. This is paradox. This is a conundrum of the mind. This goes back to what I was saying earlier, that he voluntarily submitted himself to the will of the Father and became obedient to whom? God. Even to death on the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the greatest name, and everybody's going to bow and acknowledge one day soon that he is Lord. The word works I mentioned is in the plural. In verse 36, it encompasses all that Jesus did in his entire earthly life and ministry. We're being shown here in verse 36 that the Lord Jesus lived the way we should have. None of us have. Isn't this beautiful? Let me say this another way. If this isn't magnetic to your soul and just click you to Christ, I don't know what kind of Christianity you're talking about, that he lived in an unbroken posture of perfect subordination to the pleasure of his Father without exception. Everything he ever did He tells us in John 7, in other passages of the Gospel of John, every word He ever spoke. The words that I speak to you are not my own, but from the Father who sent me. So dependent, that muscle didn't move unless the Father gave Him command what to say, and in His words, what to speak. If you don't see in Him this beauty of humble submission to come and achieve for you and me. I mean to win, to accomplish for you and me the redemption that we never could have earned on ourselves. You know why? Because none of us are submissive. None of us are born delighting in authority. We've asked the question here a hundred times if we've asked it once, do you like to be told what to do? That's not the Christian question. The Christian question is, do you love to be told what to do? Oh, how I love your commandments. 1 John chapter 3, His commands are not burdensome. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. I'm not talking about putting weight on your shoulders and a list of rules to make God like you more. I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I'm talking about working from it because the Savior who saves did it by submitting himself to the Father. Who are we to live in pride and rebellion? Who's your authority? No man's my authority. I'm my own man. That may be true. At least you've told everybody you're not a Christian. If you don't embrace Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah who alone can bring you to God, then you're rejecting not only the message of today's preacher, but you're rejecting the entire avalanche of all the works that Jesus ever did in his earthly life, in all of his labors, including his passive obedience, letting men kill him. Nobody took his life. John chapter 10, he laid it down on his own initiative. He arrested the men that arrested him in John 18. They all fell on their back, 600 soldiers. Satan wasn't in control. He gave himself as a ransom for many. He did that. He laid his life down. He's in total charge of every moment, including his own death, in obedience to his Father, for the redemption of God's own. And if, his, if this avalanche of the works of Jesus doesn't 
bring your heart to melt in front of him in love, nothing ever will. He's God. Fourth, it's verse 37 and 38. If you don't believe, you're not only condemned, that's so true, it's so soberingly true. I know preachers have wielded this aspect of gospel truth as a weapon, but I mean to wrap it in love today. And here's the point of verse 37 and 38. If you believe you're not only condemned, you're triple condemned. Do you see it? The Father who sent me, He has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time. That's number one. Nor seen His form. That's number two. You do not have His word abiding in you. That's number three. Four, you do not believe Him whom He sent. The four at the middle of verse 38 works not as cause but as evidence. The proof that you've never heard God's voice, seen His form, or have His word abiding in you, the evidence that those things are true is that you do not believe Him whom He sent. It's not just in Him, it's Him. It's not faith in faith, it's Jesus, to live is Christ. You don't believe Him. He's not the object of all your hope. Because that, Jesus is saying, is true of you. This evidence is so obvious about you. You do not entrust yourself to me. I know three damning things about you. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's the evidence in the courtroom, and that presupposes you've never heard God's voice one day in your life. You do not know what God is like. You haven't seen Him. Israel knew His works. Moses knew His ways. There's a difference. There is a difference. Do not let the wise man boast in his riches. Strong man boast in his strength. Do not let the rich man boast in his riches, strong man in his strength, wise man in his wisdom, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the God who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That's Jeremiah 9. Believe him. So the evidence of not believing in the one whom God has sent presupposes these triple condemnations. I think that's the way the word for works in verse 38. You could say it to this way. Owing to this evidence that you don't believe in the Lord Jesus, embracing Him as God and Messiah, the one whom God has sent, therefore it is certain that three damning things can be said about you truly. First, verse 37. You've never heard God's voice at any time. Now remember again who Jesus is speaking with. The Jews, verse 10, verse 15, verse 16, verse 18. These are Bible people, well studied in the Scriptures people. And Jesus is saying to those people, you've never heard God, ever. Not one time, not one day. No trip to the synagogue, you've never heard God's voice. Those who presumed, 
the Jews, to be the exclusive community to whom God spoke were precisely the audience to whom Jesus asserted, you don't know what his voice sounds like. Now for those who are parents, if you're in a sea of students and your child cries out, Mom! Moms know. That's their child's voice. These people have no ear for the voice of the Good Shepherd, chapter 10. They've never heard His voice. They can't detect the voice of God ever. Just like the first century, right here today in January of 21, we live in a very soupy spiritual climate full of self-proclaimed receivers of divine messages. You can tune your device or television to all sorts of religious garbage. People claiming that they've heard from God and have a special word from you. Dear friends, if anybody ever starts a sentence this way, God told me, and the next syllable out of their mouth is not a direct quotation of Scripture, don't believe what they say. But I want to say it even more focused than that, even more concentrated than that. Although the Bible is God's Word, it doesn't become God's Word. It doesn't only speak to you when you feel like it. It's living and active. This is God's voice. This is His speech. The Scriptures are the revelation of God to you, whether you feel like it or not. We can go a step further than what I just said a moment ago. And the concluding paragraph of this chapter accents it all the more. That is this. We can say God is speaking through His Word written, And you can be certain that you are hearing and understanding God's speech to you. Here's the the concentrated. So long as the eye of your faith is more and more focused, more and more riveted, more and more drawn to, more and more aimed at the Lord Jesus Christ. If God speaks to you, I promise He's going to tell you to look at His Son. If somebody quotes a Bible verse, and it doesn't aim there, They are not talking as God talks. That's what Jesus is saying. If you believe Jesus, then Jesus says you could claim that you've heard God's voice. Otherwise, everything you've ever thought was God talking to you is nothing more than a figment of your own damning imagination. Verse 37, number 2. Not only have those who have not believed, that's the evidence, not also been guilty of not hearing God, they've also, verse 37, never seen Him, nor seen His form. The boasts of empty religion is endless. My family was in India. The Hindu temples were jam-packed when this church sent teams to Nigeria seven or eight times. I was on a handful of those trips. All the Muslim mosques are packed. The prosperity preaching establishments in our land and across in foreign lands are are jam-packed. So many people claiming to have seen apparitions. The nonsense just continues to carry on like a river nonstop. People imagining that they see apparitions of Jesus in stains on a wall so folks will come from miles around to take a look at the stain. And Jesus is saying to people who've read their Bible their whole life, you've never seen God, ever. Not one day. Claiming to be wise, Christless spirituality makes a man a fool. 
Jesus is asserting that only through faith in Him can anybody see God. D.A. Carson puts it so succinctly and so well. Since Jesus is the manifestation of God, John 1.18, John 14.9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Since Jesus is the manifestation of God and the Jews do not see God in Jesus, it follows that they're not true Jews. They're not true Israelites. There's a reason Jesus used this phrase. You've never seen God. He's talking to the Jews. The Jews are the Israelites. Where did Israel get her name? The Jews boasted of belonging through family tree, human lineage, to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did God change Jacob's name to? Israel. Jesus is saying, you're not a true Israelite. Why why would he say you've never seen God? Because Genesis 32, these people knew their Bibles. When Jacob wrestled with God, and his hip was dislocated, (laughs) and he had his name changed to Israel, Genesis 32.30 says, So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. According to John's earlier use of that very same passage, Genesis 32, he uses it in John 1.45 and following, it should be concluded that Jesus is saying to these people, the God with whom Jacob wrestled and the God whom Jacob saw is the one standing in front of you talking to you now. The one who saw God face to face in the Old Covenant has been pleased to come to you in the New Covenant, that God, and He's none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believed Jesus, who He is, what God claims about Him, then you could claim that you had seen God because, as Paul wrote so beautifully under inspiration, in Him, Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Otherwise, everything you've ever thought about God revealing Himself to you, I'm telling you, God has never spoken to you and you've never seen Him if the voice and the sight are not in Christ. Everything you've ever thought was God revealing Himself to you is nothing more than a figment of your own damning imagination unless it terminates on the Lord Jesus. Third damnation is verse 38. Failure to embrace Jesus by faith reveals God's Word does not abide in you. You do not have His Word abiding in you. For, here's the evidence that I know that's true, you do not believe Him whom He sent. Jesus is crescendoing here. It's the crux of his argument. It leads to what he's going to say in the final section of this passage. Jesus is no doubt inferring that he is the voice of God. He is the only way to see God. And as God, he is the greatest possible revelation of God. Ironically, the Jews presumed to know God's word. And let's face it, they knew the verses better than anybody in this room. To become a Pharisee, they would have memorized the Torah, first five books of the Bible, verbatim. They would have been able as a scribe to handwrite them from memory, without error. They presumed to know God because they thought they knew his word. 
But according to John 1, 1, first verse of this book, Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the Word incarnate to which the Word written points. According to Hebrews, he's the full and final revelation of God to which all other divine revelation points. Friends, you can hear God's voice. Now, I'm going to say something astonishing, and this ought to you know, knock you out of your chair, maybe cause you to hide underneath it. You can hear God's voice today. You can see His face today. You can have His Word abiding in you today. If you will but believe Jesus whom He has sent. The line of demarcation drawn for every person between the most blessed life possible and the greatest condemnation possible is do you believe the one God has sent? Friends, life is hard for everybody. But good news for Christians. There is, there is a, 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 a protective layer beneath us. This is as close to hell as believers will ever get. But there's also a protective layer over unbelievers. This is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. You better get all you can in this life because the one to come is going to be atrociously awful beyond description. Do you believe in the one God has sent? If yes, you don't get two hells. If no, you get hell here and hereafter. The evidence that the three worst things that could happen to any person, no voice of God, no sight of God, no word of God abiding in you, were happening to the Jews who confronted Jesus in John 5 is laid out in this plain statement. They don't believe. The final portion of the passage, verses 39 to 47. This one's worth a couple thousand sermons. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify about me and you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. That word search, verse 39, it could be taken as an imperative, a command. Go search the Scriptures, but in context it's almost certainly, and every translation pretty much takes it and commentator takes it this way as an indicative. It's a description you're the type of people who are Scripture searchers. He's not telling them to find eternal life by searching more. He's rather acknowledging that they are the type of people who could be accurately described by somebody who is omniscient as people who search Scripture. Now how diligently must you study your Bible for Jesus to describe you as somebody who diligently searches Scripture? That's the way he describes them. But notice he also points to their motive. He knows that they do not want to go to hell when they die. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They want eternal life. They do not want eternal death, and therefore they are devoted to this book. Why do you read the book? The effect that this book had in the lives of the people to whom Jesus spoke was that they used it as a weapon with which they could cut everybody else around them and prop themselves up. They would prop themselves up by trying to impress the churchy people with their ability to recite it or allude to it. So they saw it as a weapon for them to use against everybody else and to prop themselves up. Feel big. Or do you come to this book as a window upon which you can 
rest your arms on the seal and gaze into the face of God in Christ. According to Jesus, there are bad ways to read the Bible. Bad as in damnably bad. As in never have eternal life, although you can quote entire chunks of it, bad. As the aged Paul would write to Timothy, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's 1 Timothy 1.8. You want to know what he does three verses later? He makes a beeline to the Lord Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost of all. Verse 15 of the same chapter. Paul was writing as a man after his conversion who we know got his saturation in the Bible totally wrong for most of his life. He's not ashamed to admit that. Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, was a Bible-saturated man. And he got all of it, not some, not most, all of it wrong until he met the risen Jesus. He previously had confidence in his flesh. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. But when he found his heart satisfied in the saving mercies of the risen Lord Jesus, he threw off not his Bible, but all Christless approaches to his Bible. He counted everything rubbish that he may gain Christ, that he may know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. He wanted to attain to the resurrection of the dead. That is, he wanted to know Jesus as fully as Jesus could possibly be known in the life of a saved sinner on this side of eternity. He wanted as much sanctification in the Lord Jesus, as much likeness to Christ as would be possible for a saved sinner in this lifetime. The point of the Bible is plainly to lead you to the person of Christ use the Bible that way that's a very good way to use your Bible the Bible's main subject and the one in whom all of its promises find God's unwavering amen is Jesus let me summarize that good news the Bible's not about you it's about him It's not about any of the characters from first to last, cover to cover. It's not about Moses and Abraham. It's not about Noah and Joshua. It's about Jesus. Putting it plainly, Jesus is teaching us in these final verses of John 5 that if you don't know Jesus by faith, you may know a lot of Bible stories, but you do not know the God of the Bible. Six times in John's Gospel, he emphasizes that the entire Bible points to the Lord Jesus. John 1.45, Philip says to Nathaniel, hey, this is Jesus about whom Moses wrote all his books. John 2.22, when Jesus is raised from the dead, we're told that the disciples remembered, oh, that's what all the scriptures are about. John 3.10-14, Numbers 21 is about Jesus. The brazen serpent lifted up, oh, that's Jesus. Lifted up for us on the cross. John 5 here, 39 and 40, 45 to 46, and then again in John Chapter 20, verse 9. Once you see the luster of Christocentricity in all the Scripture, don't lose me here. This is like for the rest of your life goodness. Once you see the luster of Christocentricity in all the Scriptures, you're not going to understand your Bible perfectly. Like I do so often, you're going to continue to make mistakes in your interpretation of it. I wrote 
the commentary section for our Teleos Gospel of Mark study during COVID quarantine, I already disagree with several things I wrote. Hadn't even been a year. You're going to make some mistakes in your interpretation of the Bible if you have an unwavering commitment to Christocentric interpretation. But you will not be able to unsee the glory of Christ revealed in this book from cover to cover. A Christocentric hermeneutic, that is your interpretive principle and key, is absolutely essential to a proper reading of the Bible. If your Bible immersion doesn't lead you to Jesus, you're wrongly practicing your immersion. D.A. Carson, what is at stake in Jesus' statement in 39 to 47 is a comprehensive hermeneutical key. By predictive prophecy, type, revelatory event, anticipatory statute, what we call the Old Testament is understood to point to Christ. His ministry, His teaching, His death, and His resurrection. If you don't read that Old Testament with Jesus in view, then you're not reading it the way Jesus taught us to. In closing, let your eyes just fall on verses 41 and following. Jesus doesn't need glory from you. I don't receive glory from men. He's not looking for our applause and our hand claps. He could have easily gained crowds anywhere, anytime he wanted to. If he wanted millions of social media followers, he could have done it overnight. He could go viral more quickly than any viral person has ever viraled. Do you live for that? Do you thirst for glory from men? That's why Jesus condemns these people in the verses that follow. Do you love this? You want the praise of man? If you're not a Christian, I know something about you. Even if I've never met you. If you haven't come to Christ in absolute surrender, I already know that you covet praise. Everybody's born that way. Self is the thing in you that covets praise that Christ must put to death. And if you haven't come to Him initially and had the dagger of the cross plunged into the heart of self, then there's no way you're putting self to death daily. Jesus had zero need of praise of man because He knew He had the smile of the Heavenly Father. And the blessed life is the life that lives for the approval of one. And that's what Jesus is offering. But in verse 42, these people don't have the love of God in themselves. It doesn't mean in this passage that God doesn't love them. It means that they don't love Him. Let me ask you plainly, do you love the God of the Bible? Do you love the Lord Jesus? If your answer to that is yes, part two, can you compartmentalize that love? I mean, does it only affect certain areas of your life? These people did not have the love of God in them, pervading all of them. I'm not asking about love in terms of sentiment. I'm asking in terms of covenant. H have you met God in Christ in the bloody sacrifice of the cross for your sins? Have you been overwhelmed that God could love a sinner like you like that? 
Has God's demonstration of love for you and the death of His Son melted your heart before Him and produced in you a reciprocal love back to Him? He gave all of Himself for you. You gladly surrender all of yourself to Him. These people masqueraded as special servants of God, didn't they? The Jews of John 5. But they had no love. No love to God. Finally, the last little part of the passage. Verse 46 and 47, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. This touches what we've already accented. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbered, and Deuteronomy, Jesus is saying, if you read Leviticus and you don't get to Jesus, then you're not reading Leviticus the way Jesus said it should be read. I'm not suggesting that Jesus is under every rock of the Pentateuch, and I'm not encouraging anybody to ignore historical context, grammatical construction of sentences. I'm not saying mystify your Bible and allegorize everything. I'm not in any way suggesting that to read the Torah is correctly is to ignore the verbiage that's actually in it, the words that are there, or to read something into those passages that makes them sound spiritually Jesus-centered. Rather, I'm encouraging us all from verse 46 and 47, to read our Old Testament the same way all the New Testament apostles did? What's the gospel, Paul? What's the good news? How am I going to get saved? Here's your answer. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Old Testament. The death, burial, and resurrection. The good news of God's grace to us in Christ. Like Timothy was taught by his mom and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, from childhood. He was taught the sacred writings, the Old Testament, which are, quote, able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That is what the Old Testament should do to you. All day long, from morning till evening, we should aspire to be like the Apostle Paul, who when he was under arrest, sat down early in the morning and were told, from morning until evening, Acts 28, 23, People came to his lodging and he explained to them, testifying about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. All day long, all Old Testament, all pointing to Jesus. Peter tells us that all the Old Testament prophets wrote full of the Spirit of Christ, pointing to the sufferings of Christ and his glories that would follow. J.C. Ryle said, every part of our Bible is meant to teach us about Christ. Christ is not merely in the Gospels, In the epistles, Christ is to be found directly and indirectly in the law, the Psalms, the prophets, in the promises to Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David, in the types and emblems of the ceremonial law, in the predictions of Isaiah and all the other prophets. Jesus the Messiah is everywhere to be found in the Old Testament. When Jesus rose from the dead, he told his best friends on that day, All that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Written where? In the Old Testament. Even when he hung on the cross, he cries out the words of Psalm 22, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer the Bible would give us is he was forsaken so that you would never have to be. You can become God's child. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you because Jesus lived for you the life you should have, died for you the death that you should have, and the entire Scripture testifies to the fact that He is God and Christ. 
But if you don't believe Moses' writings, you never believe Jesus' words. Here's the way I picture an ominous encounter in heaven. I'm not suggesting it's going to play out like this. This is my sanctified imagination. This is where I close. There's going to be a proverbial long line of people at the gate of heaven. I don't think it's going to work like this again. And in that line, there are going to be people so exhilarated with joy to see the Lord Jesus, to see those marks in His hands and His feet and that place in His side where the sword pierced. His glorified body who alone envisages God, presents God to us. All of the glory of the triune God beaming from Him. People just elated with joy. And in that same mix, there's going to be some people who presume that they're on their way to glory. And as they get a little closer to the action, they're going to be saying things about their knowledge of the Bible. And they're going to be talking about verses and chapters and situations in the Old Testament, telling the stories. And Moses is going to overhear. Sounds like what I wrote. I recognize that passage. Water from the rock. Now, I don't know if Moses is going to have his staff in heaven, but let's just imagine that he does, and he wanders over and says, Ah, I recognize that story. And he introduces himself to those people as Moses. And they say, We've set all our hope in you. We've studied your writings. We've made it our life ambition to get to know this book. I could quote it to you forward and backward in my sleep. And Moses might say, did you notice that I was at the Mount of Transfiguration beholding the glory and majesty of God in the face of Christ? Did you notice the way the New Testament authors talked about my perseverance and ability to leave Egypt only because I was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, and I was seeing Him who is unseen. And then these people are going to be mystified. Oh, wh- who are you talking about? Now again, I don't know if he'll have his staff, but if he does, and in glory, I doubt he would have this impulse. But if he had his staff, I wonder if he'd want to raise it and strike them harder than he struck the rock. If those people professed to know what he was talking about and had no clue about the Lord Jesus. You see, Peter wanted to build three tabernacles on the Mount of Transfiguration. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. You know what that meant? I take it to mean he was just as impressed with them as he was with Jesus. But then a switch flipped. And when Peter met the risen Jesus... They couldn't find him at first. They needed to go tell all the disciples that he rose from the dead, dot, 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 and Peter. Peter went back fishing, but one day he jumped out of his boat and he swam to the shore as fast as he could and the Lord Jesus was cooking breakfast for Peter and his friends on a charcoal fire. The only other place that charcoal fire appears in the whole Bible is the night Peter denied Jesus. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. And he was warming himself by charcoal fire when he made those denials. And then there's Peter encountering the risen Jesus for breakfast, cooking for him on nothing other than charcoal fire. And Peter smells that smell and he knows instantly, I denied this Lord. But you know the switch that flipped for Peter? 
There were no more tabernacles for anybody in Peter's life except Jesus. There was no more admiration and praise for anybody but Jesus. When you realize that in His resurrection from the dead, there is proof positive that validates every other word He ever spoke and every other miracle He ever did, that He is God, then you either give yourself to Him or you knowingly reject the only hope you'll ever have for eternal life. Pray with me. Oh, Father. Oh, Father. We ask that You would give us Jesus. On the basis of Your Word, in light of the preponderance of the evidence of His works and the testimony of John the Baptist and all the other prophets and Your own testimony shouting from heaven, Father, that this is Your Son, proving to the world, having furnished proof, Your Word says, to the world by raising Him from the dead. We agree with you, even though the world is continuing to be swept away in a flood of absurdity and insanity, we agree with you, God, that Jesus of Nazareth is God. And we thank you that you gave him who alone could rescue us from our sins and ransom us to you and make us your children. We love and praise you. Jesus' name, amen. I think this small chorus, Behold the Lamb, we'll sing through a couple of times.